Uh, good morning, Cornerstone, and happy Sunday. It's hard to believe that this is our 13th Sunday of being separated and having to do church online. I want you to know that as a pastor, I am missing being together, and I speak on behalf of our entire staff. We would much rather be together in our building, but this will have to do, and I, uh, I thank you for having me in your living room or your office or wherever it is that you're watching the message today and worshiping with us. Earlier this week, I spent some time listening to an interview that was done by Carl Lentz as he was interviewing Bishop T.D. Jakes. Carl Lentz is the lead pastor of Hillsong East Coast, and T.D. Jakes is the founding pastor and lead pastor of Potter's House in uh, Dallas, Texas. And if you've never seen T.D. Jakes, uh, you should look him up. Um, I can let you know that we uh, have posted that interview on our social, social media pages. For, you can see that later uh, this week, and I'd encourage you to watch it. But I'll just tell you about T.D. Jakes if you don't know about him. He's a, he's a mountain of a man huge physical presence. Uh, his voice is even more powerful, this deep, booming, powerful, soothing voice. He's an incredible preacher, and he's one of America's best leaders. He's one of America's best spiritual leaders, and he happens to be black. And so Lentz was interviewing T.D. Jakes, and it was an unscripted, uh, kind of off-the-cuff interview where he was getting just Bishop Jakes to talk about his own feelings around racism. We all know the events that have taken place over the last three weeks in our country, and they're really just a snapshot of the things that have been happening for, for hundreds of years in our country. And so it was a powerful interview because you just heard uh, T.D. Jake's heart. And about a third of the way through the interview, so I'll whet your appetite so you can go watch it, he started talking about what it's like to be a black person in America today. And he started off by citing a, a study that was done a few years back where psychologists and doctors got together and they, they were studying the, spirit, or the physical DNA of Holocaust survivors. And what they found is that those Jewish men and women that had survived the Holocaust, that they had actually had changes to their DNA and their physical makeup. Now they had changed and they could notice a difference between Jewish men and women that hadn't survived that type of stress and trauma. Now what they did is they compared that to the DNA and certain signs in African Americans today and they found that some of the very same traits are present in African Americans today. The trauma and stress of, of racism, systemic racism, and then going back to slavery has literally changed the physical DNA and the physio physiological makeup of many of our brothers and sisters. And so Jake said, that, you know, that's true of me. But then he was trying to make it a little more personal. He said, maybe this can help to describe how it is that black America feels right now with what's taking place in our country. And he asked Carl Lentz, he said, do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? And, and most American Christians do, and certainly every pastor knows that story. We've preached it many times. It's a story of a man that was traveling on a road. Uh, he was robbed. He was beaten. And he was bloodied. And he was left there on the side of the road alone to die all by himself, beaten, bloodied, ready to die. Now along comes a religious leader, a priest. And uh, what you should know about priests is that they were reading the Jewish scriptures that instruct us to love our neighbor and to care for one another. Priests had uh, financial means at the time that this story was being told, so this priest certainly would have had the ability and the means to care for this man. But the priest, we're told, looks at the man that's lying there by himself, bloodied and beaten, and he turns his eyes and he walks around him. Next comes a Levite, priest, also a religious leader. And the same thing happens. He turns his eyes and he walks around and gives the man no, no care. Doesn't help him at all. So after the priest and the Levite comes the Good Samaritan. 
And what you need to know about the Samaritans is that they were a different race than the Jews. In fact, they were the racial enemies of the Jews at the time. And Jesus tells the story in such a way that their enemy becomes the hero. He has compassion. You know the story. He gets down on the ground. He notices him. He sees him. He bandages his wounds. He pays for this man to recover, and he cares for him. And uh, T.D. Jake said, you know, when we teach that story, we, we talk about the Good Samaritan. But he said there's other characters in the story. Of course, there's the Levite and there's the priests who pass by, but he said there's another character in the story, and it's the man that's lying there by himself, beaten and bloodied. And then he said this. He said, Black America is that man. And he said, I am bleeding. We're bleeding as a people. And then he asked the question to, to Pastor Lentz and those that are watching. He said, will you let me bleed? Will you see me, or will you just let me bleed there by myself? I found uh, just that story and that application of that story to current situ circumstances profoundly moving. Today, I'm sharing this message from the Norland Quad. Uh, Norland Library is, is right over in this direction. This is Old Main. Uh, Norland Quad and Norland Library are named after former CU president George Norland, who uh, was a really effective university president in the early part of the 20th century. President Norland's most well known for a stand that he made in the 1920s. Many people don't know this story. The Ku Klux Klan had actually gained power in the Colorado State Legislature and they had the majority. And then they also won an important election and they were able to put their man in the governor's seat, Governor Morley. And one of the things that Governor Morley did is he calls up President Norland and he says, um, you need to get rid of all of your, your minority staff. And there wasn't very many at the time at, at the University of Colorado. And he said, that needs to include uh, any staff that's Jewish or Catholic. They need to be fired. Now, President Norland refused. Governor Morley, or President Mor Governor Mor Morley threatened to pull all funding from the University of Colorado if Norland didn't do what he was told, and Norland held his ground. And uh, Morley delivered on his promise. He was committed. Hey, it has a commitment to it. And so he pulled all the funding from the Univers University of Colorado, and President Norland had to lead this institution through three years that were very difficult because all of their funding had almost, almost all of their funding had gone away. So this quad is a place of honor for someone who stood for justice. Now today we're going to continue in our series called Beginnings Bear a Sheep. We're looking at ancient words that come from the first few chapters of the book of Genesis and these words become themes throughout the Bible but they are the foundations on which human flourishing starts and so that's really why we're wanting to bring these to you. These are the things that we build our lives on and uh, today we want to talk about two of those uh, phrases that come from the ancient Hebrew language and we translate them to the divine image and the divine likeness. And I can tell you that we had planned on sharing this message later in the month, but because of recent events, but moreover, because there is solidarity right now, and there is a sense that things need to change after the George Floyd death, we believe that we want to capture the momentum. We want to take advantage of this opportunity, we want to move things forward, and we want to see real change take place. And so we thought this was the best message to share with you uh, today, to take that righteous anger, that righteous sadness that many of you have, and funnel, of it, funnel it in a deliberate, effective um, avenue, in an effective way. Which, by the way, righteous anger is different than just being angry. 
And so we want to take that righteous anger, that righteous sadness, and do something with it. And so we're going to talk about race today. Um, and before I do that, I want to preface everything else I'm about to say with a, a few things. So first of all, I want you to know that I'm just a pastor. Um, it's kind of ironic that I'm sharing about this right now because what I've been trying to do this week is just mostly listening. And now I'm sharing my thoughts. I'm not an activist. I'm not a politician. I'm not an academic that studied the subject from every different angle. I'm a pastor of Cornerstone Church. And if you haven't noticed, we're not a very physically diverse church. We have diversity in other areas, but we're not very physically diverse. In fact, the most diverse part of our church is our children's ministry. It's a beautiful thing to see all those kids down there together. So I'm a pastor of our church, and we don't have a lot of experience in Boulder and even at Cornerstone having to deal with this kind of thing. So, but we want to do our best. And one of the things that I'm personally called to, as is all of our staff, is the job of a pastor is to lift up the kingdom of God and to remind us that this is our vision. And wherever and whenever uh, the reality of people is not that of the kingdom of God, where the reign of Jesus is not blessing people, we are to stand up and speak out on behalf of the kingdom which happens to lead to the flourishing of others. And so we feel like we need to do that today. And so we're asking you to listen. I know some of you are already ready to, to tune out. <clears throat> Maybe you're tired of listening <coughs> Excuse me, to this topic. But I think this is an important conversation for our church to have. And I, and I would ask you, if you're part of Cornerstone, to, to hang in there and to move through this. Because um, we're not going to change the whole world today. But our church needs to have this conversation. A few other things to preface this. I can tell you that shame will never be used at our church as a means to bring about change and transformation. So this message is not meant to shame at all. Hopefully we won't have that tone at all. We simply, simply have an invitation from Jesus to join him in building a just, equitable world, which is what his kingdom is like. And so I want to encourage you to listen today and engage with compassion for one another. There are some people right now who are trying to take their first steps into this issue. And it won't be helpful for other people to um, go after them for all of the things they don't do right. All the words that they don't use that are, that are correct. The, the right and the wrong words that are used. Notice the sentiment. Notice the movement towards people. Uh, I've been listening to some of our, our black Christian leaders this week. And I've heard them say many times over that there are no experts on this subject. And so we need to have compassion for one another. But I also wanted to say to people that are like me, people not of color, compassion looks like listening. And it is incumbent on us to be good listeners at this time. That's how we don't turn our eyes, is we listen. Deuteronomy chapter 10 has been in my heart this week. This is what it says, strong words. Circumcise your hearts. In other, way, in other words, cut away that which is wasted, that which is not good. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner. You could insert, he loves the person of color. He loves that, those that are black, those that are brown, those that are yellow. He loves the foreigner residing among them, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. I mean, those are very strong words that God is speaking to his people about their commitment to justice. All right, now saying all that, let's go to our ancient words. 
And we find those in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. This is what it says. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move around the ground. So God created mankind in his image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And so the Hebrew phrase here is Betzalem Elohim in the image of God and Bet Demu in the likeness of God. And so the image of God often gets described as the divine image or the Imago Dei, which is the Greek phrase. Many of you know it as that. Bet Demu, the likeness of God or the divine likeness. This is the beginning of every person, every person's identity. This is the first thing that's true about a person. And this is where value comes from. And that is why every life is sacred, no matter what has taken place or what a person feels about themselves or what has been said about them. Every life is valuable because identity comes from this. You have the divine image, the divine likeness within you. But I also want you to see that a person's calling comes from this verse. So our identity starts here and our calling starts here, and we'll get to that in a moment. But in summary, all humanity shares the creative purpose to be both an image bearer and an image restorer. God has given each person part of himself, and he has made and fashioned each one of us to resemble him and to act like him and to fill the earth with his image. He's given us his great traits. But unlike parents, natural parents who pass down physical traits to their children, during a natural birth, there are no negative traits that are passed on from God to us because God is only good. And so the only things you've received from God in your creation are those things that are good. Uh, you've only received gold. You've only received glory from him. Most of the time we don't use words like that to describe people. That's what's inside of each of us. Salam, the word for image, uh, Betzalem in the image of, is a very specific idea that we are made to be a copy of God, to represent him, to be a representative figure, to resemble him. In the same way that you can take a picture and it captures a moment or it captures a version of yourself in the past, we are to be a picture of God in this world. You know, I'm now at the age that I look back at pictures of myself in my 20s and I think, who was that person? There is certainly a whole lot more of me to show off the image of God today than there was back then. But we are all meant to fill this world and reflect back to God, his very image. The moment our second son, Wyatt, was born, people began to say, he looks just like Brian. And of course, he didn't look just like him, but what they were saying is that his physical traits resemble his father. That when they look at him, it reminds, uh, it reminds them of, uh, of Wyatt's dad. You were created after him. You are meant to be a reminder of God. Now, if you think in contrast to this story, you take this story and in contrast to what was happening in pagan cultures at the time, uh, there were many gods and there were many man-made temples and there were many man-made images. <clears throat> and people would make these images, these idols of God, and they'd put them in the temples and they'd put them throughout the world and, and they say, this is what God is like. Did you know that God has made several prohibitions in the scriptures against building an image around his likeness? Why would he do that? Because he's already put his image and God made living image bearers. It's a similar idea. The earth was his first temple. We are to fill the earth with the image of God. Now here's a question. Why do you think God repeats this word for image three different times in this passage? 
you're made in the image of God. In the image of God, you were made. Could it be that God knew that we would forget? That we have a tendency as people to forget things from the very beginning. And, you know, if we share in common that we have this divine image and divine likeness, there are other things that we certainly share. You get to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man happens. You know what we all share then as well? The sinful nature. And part of that corruption to our soul and our mind is that we begin to forget about the value that each one of us has. We fail to see the value in other people. We forget. We so easily forget the most important things. Eugene Peterson, in a book called Answering God, he says, We are declared on the authority of Genesis good. We and everyone and everything around us have this basic beauty, this wondrous goodness. But we very often don't feel at all good. We do not perceive ourselves in the image of God. What Peterson is trying to say is that a lot of times we walk around and we don't see ourselves as created. And we don't see others as created. So God reminds us over and over again, this is where value and purpose and calling starts. You go to this second phrase, bait demut, the likeness. This word shows up other places in the scriptures to describe um, certain things made in the manner of or modeled after. And if you go back to that illustration of, of, of a parent with their children, um, this wouldn't say they look like their parents, but we would say things like this. He acts just like his dad. Or her mother does that very same thing. Or he got that behavior, she got that behavior from their parents. You were created to act like him. To be loving and gracious and brave and generous and forgiving and faithful and redeeming. This then is really what ultimately discipleship is meant to be. Discipleship is Jesus and the Holy Spirit returning us to the likeness of God placed in us from the beginning. What Jesus knows that we often forget is yes, the, the image of God, the likeness of God has been tarnished in every one of us, including me, but he knows that it is not gone. It's covered up, it's tarnished, but it is still there. And so Jesus and the Holy Spirit reanimate that and reignite that. And new life is, is, is birthed inside of a person when they turn to Jesus. And what happens is God begins to return us to his likeness. Now, the divine image and the divine likeness is something that we all share in common. So this is where equality comes from. We all have it. It's the first thing that's true about every person. And so no matter what race, what sex, what gender, what age, what faith, whatever category you want to use, we all start with this. This is where equality comes from. Therefore, all life is equally sacred. And what this means is, is that although we have difference, what we share in common is even more important. Now, that is not to say that our differences are not important, such as color and race and gender. Those things are important. And when we pretend like, for example, uh, that gender doesn't matter, that God's designed for gender, that God chose our gender. When we, when we fail to see that, what we're doing is we're undermining the diversity of God's creation and moreover, it undermines God's own diversity revealed in all of us together. So the same happens with race. We undermine God's diversity revealed in all of us together. Acts chapter 17 says, From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. From one man, all humanity was made. So humanity shares the creative purpose to be both an image bearer and an image restorer. Now for the rest of the time that we have today, I'm interested in talking about that second piece of being an image restorer. Because we need some of that today. We need a lot of that today. We need a renewed commitment 
as followers of Jesus to be people who renew the image of God and others. <clears throat> so let's think about calling for a moment. One of the things that um, modern Americans get wrong when we think about calling is we think calling starts with the things that we're interested in, the things that we like, the things that we're passionate about, the things that were good. That's part of calling, but it's not where we should start. And the 18th century Puritans, I think, have the best teaching on calling. I've mentioned this several times, and I'll mention it again, but I'll use the words of Andy Crouch this time. So they describe what they first called the general calling, and, and this is a calling that every person that has ever been made shares, and that is to be that image bearer, to fill the earth, the image of God, and to fill the creation with the character of the Creator. Now, under that comes the calling that comes for the, with those that give their lives to Jesus. And, and this is referred to by the Puritans as highest calling. And that is that every person that's part of the family of God is now called to be an image restorer in addition to be an image bearer. So this is what he says. The entire story of God's people, beginning with Abraham and Sarah, and now extending to all the nations through the reconciling power of the cross, is a vast world historical rescue, rescue mission to restore the capacity for true image bearing. Our distinct calling as Christians in the gospel is not just to till and keep the world as image bearers, but to actively seek out those places where the image has been lost to place ourselves at particular risk on behalf of victims of idolatry and injustice. And so in every workplace, Christians should be those who speak up most quickly and sacrifice their own privileges most readily for those whose image bearing has been compromised by the organization's patterns of neglect. In every society, Christians should be the most active in using their talents on behalf of those society considers marginal or unworthy. I mean, how many of you thought about your love for Jesus, your dedication for Jesus being played out in being an image restorer? I think Andy Crouch is absolutely right, and we have to face this. It's what we're called to do. Now, what happens if you skip those top two and you get down just to the things that you want? Your calling will only be about you, and God will have a hard time using you. But you get the first two. It's a whole lot easier to determine that specific calling. But highest calling to be an image restorer. Now, this is why... The Bible is a playbook on what to do when the image of God is being compromised in any person. It's a book about redemption and reconciliation and equity and generosity between people. Not just between us and God, but between one another. The scriptures are a playbook of what to do when human dignity falls apart. And so if you go all the way back, God first gives us the Torah, his good law that's first given to the nation of Israel. And that, that good law is full of things, that subjects of freedom and equality among all people. And it gets very specific, men and women, young and old, equality within the diversity of the nations. And that's why Israel is constantly reminded about the stranger, the alien, the foreigner among them, those of different races that come. You're to treat them with preference, it says. You keep reading and you get to the prophets and you see how God takes this very seriously and there becomes, there, uh, there gets to be certain warnings all the way from Genesis through the prophets to Jesus. There is warning about what happens when we do not treat God's sacred creation with the value that it deserves, the dignity it deserves. So a lot of people don't think of God as angry, but there are certain things that make him angry. Genesis chapter 4 is the first time that the image of God was neglected to be seen and a person was, was treated uh, a way that they shouldn't have been. 
and this was actually a sibling rivalry. Cain kills his brother, and the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground, and you are now under a curse because the ground has received his blood. That's Genesis 4, verse 10. You keep reading, get to Genesis 9, listen to what it says about violence and taking a life. <clears throat> and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sh sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For the image of God, he has made mankind. So he's connecting back to Genesis chapter 1. You will answer to God, is what it says. You keep reading. Just remember the words that Jesus said about how people mistreat children. Oh, man. <clears throat> Those are harsh words. So in addition to warning people about how children should be treated, Jesus was the one that st uh, stood up, noticed, and stepped forward any time um, someone's dignity was being taken away or not noticed. And so Jesus spoke to men and women with bad reputation. Jesus spoke to men and women of the wrong race. Jesus spoke to men and women who were physically not well. What was he doing? He was seeing them. He was moving towards them. And he was reminding and restoring in them that which is sacred. And you take all that and you apply it to our current situation of race in our country. And I want to, I want to share some thoughts and some scriptures that I believe apply to that. <clears throat> First of all, did you know that Jesus wasn't white? Most of you at Cornerstone know that he was Jewish. He has Semitic blood. But if you look back at his lineage, there's blood from many different nations. He even has African blood in his line. So Jesus is a multi-ethnic savior of all people. And someday all the nations will worship with all the languages the one multi-ethnic multi savior. What a picture. But we're told to be careful that we don't treat each other different um, because of our color or our race, Leviticus 24. You would have the same law for the foreigner as the native born. You could add to that the law should be enforced the same way for the foreigner as the native born or for people of different color. What you could do is you could take the word foreigner in all the scriptures and just add a person of color, someone that's black, someone that's brown. Zechariah chapter 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Administer to justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against one another. But listen what happens. <clears throat> but they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly. I think this is happening right. People are not paying attention. And stubbornly they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. You know, racism is an American problem, but it's an everywhere problem. Many years ago, I went to India and I saw the terrible caste system. You could take a trip to Uganda with us on one of our trips and you'll see racism among uh, black Africans. It's just part of the broken human nature, but it is part of our story. And it's happening in our community, in our world today. And that is why it's a cornerstone issue. Listen, equity is not everyone's experience right now. <clears throat> what we see happening around the world and in the news is telling us that. But I want to make it really personal and close to home. We have people in our own community at Cornerstone that would say equity is not their experience based on color. 
One of the things that I've heard from several of our family members that have adopted children of color is that they have to teach their kids then they're not going to be seen the same. And so this week I spoke to one of uh, the mothers in our church and uh, her and her husband have four boys. Two of, the, two of the boys are black and two of them are white. And she was telling me about their reality. And from early on, she and her husband had to teach their, their black sons that if they encounter police officers, they can't assume that the police officer is not going to see them as a threat. And so from early on, they taught their boys hands up. So they're having to teach their two black sons something they don't have to teach their two white sons. And this is a family that loves and respects police officers. They know that most of them are good and here to serve. They're actually gonna take their sons to police stations in the years to come to just help bridge, uh, begin that relationship. But think of that. Families in our own church are having to teach their kids something different based on their color. You know, I have four boys and they're all getting pretty big. They're physically intimidating. It's never crossed my mind to teach that to my sons. Why? Because they're treated different. Because they're white. See, this is an experience that too many people have. And if we don't walk away today with some practical things to do to help change the situation of those little boys and others like them, then we failed. So I want to spend the rest of my time with just some practical things that we can do. So first of all, um, this is not a small thing. It's a big thing. We can reach out. I spoke to another one of my friends that's a part of our community this week who's black. And uh, you know what he shared with me? He, he shared that he asked this question. He said, I wonder how many people in the Cornerstone community have reached out to people of color in the Cornerstone community to see how they're doing. <clears throat> and I didn't have an answer for that question. And I, but I did ask, I said, what would that do if people were to do that? And he said, you know, when in the past people have reached out and they've noticed my color and they've asked how I'm doing during times like this, it's made me feel cared for. Now, here's something that I needed to hear. Over the years, it's become popular among white people to say that we don't see color. And we had a conversation about this and this phrase. And he said, you know, I understand the sentiment and I appreciate it. Uh, What white people are saying is that they're not judging people on behalf of their color. But he said, it's not very practical because I have to see my color. That mom of those boys has to see their color. And so he was very gracious. He just said, it's not that helpful. I know what people mean, but I actually appreciate it and feel cared for when you see my color and you reach out. It reminded me of a quote from W.E.D. Du Bois, a great black leader um, from the 19th and 20th century. This is what he said about black people in America. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two ideas in one dark body. I'm trying to listen because that's not my experience. But it's people's experience in our own church. And so we can reach out, we can have conversations, we can join groups, we can listen and we can can be there with people. And let me tell you what happens when we do that. And this is what uh, really got my attention when I was having this conversation with a friend this week. He said, not only do I feel cared for, but when someone reaches out and they notice my color and they ask how I'm doing, it's healing. Healing. I mean, isn't that what the presence of Jesus does right now with us? He, he gets close to us. We notice him. He's just with us. He reaches out and healing occurs. You get to embody that for our brothers and sisters. 
This also then leads to the next practical step, and that is speaking out. I was also with this week my 78-year-old black mentor, and I asked him this week, I said, what is it that you would like from people like me? What would help? And he said, you need to speak out. You need to speak out uh, in the forums that you have. You need to speak out when you see these things happening. And then he said this. He said, the silence is painful. Now, in that interview with T.D. Jakes, I heard him say something similar. He said, when people who should know better and could do something don't say anything, it causes more harm. And he likened it to um, a child being abused by a parent while the other parent turns away and says nothing and does nothing. More harm is done. Martin Luther King Jr. said that it's the silence of good men that's most appalling. Now, I don't think anyone listening today wants to do more harm. I think most of you are perfectly loving people and you don't participate and you're not complicit in racism or oppression. Um, those that are will answer to God. We've already seen that. But we need to hear this. As white people, when we don't speak up, our silence hurts. It actually harms. And we've been told over the years that to build unity means to stay silent. But that is not true. And so we speak up. We can also teach our kids. So those of you that are parents, we have an incredible responsibility while our kids are in our home. Uh, I was actually having a conversation with my dad this week, and we were both lamenting that this kind of thing is still going on. And I said, yeah, it seems like nothing has changed. And he said, oh, Brian, he said, it's, it's bad, but I want you to know that it's different than when I was a kid. And he said this, he said, your boys can keep making a difference. And when I heard that, I thought, you just reminded me that Elise and I have an incredible responsibility to God and to all of you to teach our sons. I think the world of my boys, I believe they're going to be uh, really successful. They're going to do well in life. I think they're going to have a degree of power and influence. But I, what I want them to know is I want them to know that the calling that we just talked about, about being an image restorer, is more important than their career. And even get to the place that they might sacrifice their career because they're committed to their calling. Another thing we can do as parents is we can uh, point our kids towards true heroes. One of the things that's been helpful in our family, I tell you about this often, is that we read our kids' biographies of amazing people. And so last month, we read our boys the story of George Washington Carver. Incredible black man. Rosa Parks, we've read, read him that story. We've told him about Jackie Robinson. We've told him about uh, white heroes in, in, in England, like people like Hannah Moore, the poet and the playwright, and William Wilberforce. Our kids need to know these stories. They need to have examples that point them in the right direction. And they need to see us. Another thing W.D. Du Bois has said, and I've always carried this in my heart, is that children learn more from what you are than what you teach. Let me mention a few other ways that we can respond uh, at this time with the privilege that we have, we all have as Americans. So um, we can march, we can protest, we can hold uh, vigils. And I know many of you have been in Denver and Boulder uh, over the last two weeks, and a lot was happening in Boulder this last weekend. You can be a part of that. Uh, what that is and should be about is that you are walking with another who hurts. Your presence, remember, is healing. You could stand against injustice. It communicates that. Another thing, we, you know, we all know this, but we can vote in this country. Most of us don't pay attention to these issues when we're voting, though. And it takes a lot of effort because most of uh, the issues around race that can be handled within the realm of politics has to do with local elections. And that just doesn't get the attention. We spend time 
paying attention to the, what's happening nationally. I was reading Brian Stevenson this week, and he wrote a great book called Just Mercy. I recommend it. There's a movie that's been made about his life. He's, he's, a, he's an attorney. He's an incredible lawyer. But, um, he, you know, he's, he's, he was talking about that if you really care about criminal justice reform and pr police brutality and even support for law enforcement and things like prison reform, those are all local issues. Ninety percent of people incarcerated today in our country are in the state system. Our district attorneys are elected in local elections. City councils are elected in local elections. Sheriffs are elected in local elections. Now, we get lazy and we don't pay attention to these things, but this is where, on a day-to-day -day basis, the injustice of racism gets dealt with. And I also want to encourage you to not be deceived in thinking that one of the two political systems, or that one of the two visions of a political, uh, political solutions, has enough to solve all of this problem. I was also reading Cornell West. I read him during grad school, pulled the book back out. And uh, in his book called Race Matters, he talked about how there are certain things within the conservative mindset and the liberal mindset that actually help bring about true dignity, equality, and transformation in black America. Now that takes a lot of effort. Because we can't just listen to the things we're being told in the news or just listen to one politician making empty promises. We have to do the hard work to do our best with these complex uh, situations, these complex problems. With voting, by the way, comes advocacy. When you advocate for someone, you know what that means? It means that you speak up for them. You speak on their behalf. One of the race issues most important to me over the last 17 years has been what's happening within our Latino community here in Boulder County. Uh, we're in a school district that's been trying to address this for a while, but the achievement gap, and now it's been defined as an opportunity gap between Latino students and non-Latino students, is actually getting bigger. In other words, our Latino students are being left behind, even with certain meager efforts to change that. This is an issue of race and inequality in our own city, and many people don't know about it. And so we vote, and we advocate, and the reason we do that is because there are unjust economic systems, unjust criminal justice systems, unjust educational systems. Some is deliberate, some is not. But how are those things changed? Well, they're changed the same way that they were put in place. With just politicians and just laws and reforms. See, all of those things are the result of bad policies, judicial rulings, the result of electing the wrong people. So there are many systems in this country that need transformed. And as Americans, I believe we've gotten lazy and we let other people speak for us and make promises that they will change what actually we need to be a part of changing. Let me mention a few other things just about the scriptures when it comes to systemic racism. A lot of people deny that. I certainly am not one of them. I believe that that exists in our, our world today. When I read the scriptures, I see um, not just prohibitions against systems that oppress, but I actually see the encouragement of systems that liberate. And so if you read the Old Testament, you'll see prohibitions against excessive debt. In Deuteronomy 15, you see that every seven years, debt is to be forgiven. If people lose their lands, there was these generous clauses within the Jewish law that a family member could buy the land, redeem the land, so that the family would not fall into systemic poverty. There were economic solutions and structures that were meant to lift people up. These are the things that we need here. Not just to make people dependent, but to lift them up. 
So saying all that, I need to wrap up. It's been a long message. But I just want to say this. Whatever it is that God's calling you to do, have the courage to do it. Don't turn your eyes. Don't walk around. God will use your words. He will use your presence. He will use your vote. He will use your prayers. He will use your hard thinking. He will use you standing with another. He will use those things. And those things lead to other things. You know, there are no small acts of kindness in the kingdom. God uses all of them to build this kingdom. They're all used. All right, let me close with one last story. And so, as I mentioned from the beginning, we're here on Norland Quad, and, and this is Old Main. It's uh, the oldest building here on the University of Colorado campus. And we're in Norland Quad, a place of honor, uh, honoring President Norland. But there was also a moment of shame that took place here just a few years before President Norland made his, his stance. And so in 1918, that June, during the CU graduation, there was a young lady named Lucille Berkeley. Her full name is Lucille Berkeley Buchanan Jones, but most people know her as Lucille Berkeley. And uh, she was the first black female graduate of the University of Colorado, 1918. This was her second degree. She had earned her first degree from UNC, so go Bears. Shout out to the, all the Bears out there. Uh, but this was the second place she was earning a degree. It was a joyous day right out here at, in front of Old Main on the lawn. Right here, her family came up from Denver to watch her graduate. And as she sat there during the graduation ceremony, she was surprised when someone, an official came up to her and said, you're not gonna be allowed to walk on stage today because you're black. Right here, just a few years before President Norland made his stand against the KKK, there was a young girl who was not allowed to walk here. Today, there is a scholarship that's given out every year in her name. So this shameful thing happens here. A few years later, President Norland makes a stand. And you know what? There's never been another student, black student, or any other color at this university that's not been allowed to walk because good people spoke up and changed things. Every act matters. And as a church, we want to be a church that blesses our community those that show up in our building. We want to bless the communities around us, our cities around us. We want to bless our state. We want to bless our country. And it starts by seeing and taking those first steps towards those that are bleeding. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would soften our hardened hearts. Maybe our hearts are just fatigued from constantly being told that there's more to do, there's other things out there. Father, I pray you keep our hearts soft. I pray that we would see our brothers and sisters who are bleeding. And God, we don't pretend to know all the answers. We're not experts on any of this, and we don't hold all the solutions. But Jesus, you are leading, and you are bringing your kingdom, and you want us to just take that next step. So I pray, God, that we would have eyes to see. We'd have ears to listen, and we would have the courage to take that next step. And then even beyond that, Father, calling, when a person truly understands their calling, they commit to it. So Father, I pray for a commitment from everyone that's a part of Cornerstone Church that we would be people that stand for the image of God in all people. And wherever we see that not being recognized, not being valued, that we would step in and restore that image, that dignity, that sacredness in that place with that person. Because God, we know that race is not just an issue. There are names and people behind it. May we love them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.